Good morning, ladies. It is so good to see you all here. I'm just contemplating and thinking about this being a three-year journey, and I am just so thankful for every step of that, whether we've been here for a few months, whether we've been here the full three years, it is a journey, and I'm just, again, just so thankful for it. So I'm going to open us up in prayer, and I'll get into our teaching. Dear Lord, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the journey that we've walked with you together side by side with each one of these women. Thank you for all that they bring to the discussion, to our growth, to our questions, Lord. So I pray for the teaching today to be your words, your hope for us all as we continue our journey and we continue strong through the summer, Lord. So be with us all as we continue to read and hopefully continue to meet together. Amen. All right, so I'm teaching on Acts 24 through 28, and it's Paul again that I get to focus on. And I thought this teaching, what I'm going to be focusing on, is perfect because, do you have the PowerPoint? Okay. Um, the first time I talked about Paul, I talked about his desire to teach and to strip everything else away and to focus on Jesus, and to keep it simple, and to surrender everything that he knows, and focus on what God has given him, who Jesus is. And so he started off that way, and then he took us on a journey through many gray areas, and stumbling blocks, and situations, and the growing of the church, and it wasn't always as simple as he maybe wanted it to be. But there is one thing that he did consistently that I think was simple and powerful, and throughout all of his teachings, all of his letters, and I saw this specifically, it just stood out to me the past two weeks, he always had one message, and that one message was consistent through all the things that he experienced, all the conflict he came across, whether from the Jews, the Gentiles, culture, the world, shipwrecks, all right, he was consistent in this one message, and we're going to look at how he did that. And sometimes he almost just slides it in, and we could miss it if we aren't paying attention. So last week, um, this is what was where I completely stopped the reading. It was right at the very, very beginning of last week, Acts 20, 21. And I thought this one sentence we could stop and spend forever on. All right, Paul says in Acts 20, 21, I have, and this is when he's speaking to the Ephesians on his way to Jerusalem. He's kind of finishing what he's going to tell them before he goes. And he says, I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike. The necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God. And of having faith in our Lord Jesus. In one sentence here, he sums up the gospel, the threads, who Jesus is everything that he's been working for, he is able to sum this up in one sentence, and if we don't pause and look at what this means, we could miss it. And I want to talk about why this is so important, because he follows up in Acts 20, 28. So guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit appointed you as elders. I know that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from our own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. 
and just reading that, I have to catch my breath, forgive me. <laughs> um, uh, what I think is so important here is that he understands the danger of distorting that single sentence, that single message. I think it's important here that we connect the things that Paul comes across when he talks about cultural issues. He talks about the conflict between the Jewish and the Gentiles coming together in one message. And if you distort what that one message is, it can be lost. And I like how he points out here that even within our own flock, people will be tempted to distort that truth. Right? What is that one message that can be distorted? If we go back up to this one sentence and we think about the conflict and things we feel uncomfortable talking about, how easy would it be to say, I have one message, let's not talk about sin. I have one message, turning to God and following the faith in our Lord Jesus. Let's skip the sin. That's not going to be popular. Okay? Oh, but I just said, I said Jesus. How about I simplify it and let's say let's turn to God. Okay? Let's not talk about who Jesus is and what he did or what does repentance look like. How easy it could be to distort the truth and to leave out the things that may be difficult to talk about. But he always remains faithful to the message and what they are. And he doesn't leave them out. So I, I ask, what are the differences? Because we touched on this a little bit last week when Shauna said that he, um, what was the word she used? Paul's compromise, okay? Paul would, would compromise to meet people where they were at. But I ask, what is the difference between compromising by meeting people where they're at and compromising the message, okay? So we, we read about the examples where he would compromise with the Jews, right? The Hebrews, as they had their long-standing laws and traditions, and he let them and believed that you can continue to follow those laws and follow the Jewish tradition and still follow the one message. And he met Gentiles who have not been following these laws, saying, you don't need to follow these laws. You need to be faithful to the one message, okay? So you can have some compromise in meeting people where they're at, but never is there compromise in, this, in the message that Paul gives. And also, as I was stating before, have we ever ourselves felt the pressure to perhaps maybe leave some of the, the gospel out, leave some of the message out because it's uncomfortable? It might be more popular to say it another way. I think we can all run against the, the difficulties that Paul came against. But what can we learn from Paul in order to stay strong and to, to fully believe it ourselves, whether or not we're even just talking with other people? Okay, I'll go to the next slide. So I'm going to give some examples of where Paul remained consistent in how and why he did that. Because he's our example. We can talk about what we would do or the conflicts we've come against, but let's look at Paul and what he did and who he, who he, what he said. If you look at Acts 25, 16, Paul is recounting what he, we refer to as his conversion on the road to Damascus. All right? So he's telling us what God told him he would be doing, and so he's resharing this with everyone. He said, God tells him, you are to tell the world what you have seen and what I will show you in the future. Yes, I am sending to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from the darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God. 
Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set about by faith in me. So again, he's referring to the great command. God is telling him to do this, and he is remaining faithful to it. Okay? And so he goes on to say, Paul is saying this in 25, 20 through 23. I preached then that all must repent of their sins and turn to God. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead, and in this way announce God's light, light to Jews and Gentiles alike. And I'll stop here real quick, too, just to point out, when we talk about Paul's conversion, I, I like to stop here and pause and say that and see how he points out he isn't just totally turning to a new religion. What he's pointing out to Jewish people specifically is that this isn't something that is new. This is a continuation. Moses, the prophets, told us of this Messiah, and this Messiah is Jesus. Okay? So this is a continuation and a movement forward in Jesus Christ and what his one message is. And so he points that out, but he also says things that the Jewish people then will not like to hear. It's for the Gentiles. It is for the world, all right? And it is going to take faith, not laws, right? He is being consistent in what that one message is and what God has commanded him to do. And then towards the end of our reading this week, we'll go to the next one. Throughout all of Paul's journey that we read about in that short amount of time where he's been put in prison and he's been held captive for two years and he's had to speak to the same two people and share the same message over and over again. He's been on a ship. He's been shipwrecked with, what was it, 276 other people, survived, and made his way all the way to Rome. And God kept telling him, you would make it to Rome, and he makes it there. So we could talk about this epic journey, and as a history teacher, I would just... Love to get into the details. But I think, again, as we're about to move into the summer, it's so important to focus on what that one message is throughout all of that. So in Acts 28, 23, we find Paul in Rome. Okay, He's made it there. He's now in an apartment that he pays for himself, and he's guarded 24-7. And he's inviting the Jewish leaders to come to him so that he can again share this one message, whether it's popular or not, okay? He says, and Luke, Luke is with me, he explained and testified about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures, again, connecting it. Acts 28, 28, so I want you to know that this salvation from God has also been offered to the Gentiles, and they will accept it. Again, Gentiles, bringing in a group of people that would be very unpopular for the Jewish people to accept, okay? But he is not sure away from that message. And for the next two years, Paul lived in Rome, and at his own expense, he welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, and no one tried to stop him. How powerful can that message be when we trust in it and don't hide from it? And he was given the opportunity for two years to share that. And again, he's speaking to Jewish people who wouldn't necessarily like to hear about Gentiles. Okay, He can speak to people who are Roman citizens Okay, who will be living in fear of Christianity. Because at this time in Rome, we have Nero, the emperor, who 
who's going to round up Christians and sacrifice them for gain in horrendous, awful, terrifying ways. So he is facing conflict every step of the way. Um, and I think we can identify with conflict on, and at a certain level here that we face in San Diego or in our daily lives. And he, said, he stayed consistent with that one message. So just looking at these past two weeks, hopefully you guys can, I don't know if you guys can read that. Hmm. All right. He gives what we've got here are five examples, and I'll just briefly talk about them. Okay? Again, we started off with his talking to the Ephesians and talking about remaining consistent um, in Acts 20.21. So he's leaving the elders, warning them that don't stray from the message. People will try to do it and try to do what's popular to have a following. Remain consistent. And then we have his defense in Jerusalem. All right? He knows that he can be imprisoned. He knows that the Jews are angry. He knows that he's going to get in trouble for what he says. But he stands before the Jewish people on the steps and tries to defend the one message. And as soon as he starts saying things like Gentiles, or even when he says people rising from the dead, there's controversy because half the Jews believe that the other half don't. He is remaining consistent with that one message. And then we have when Paul appears before the governor, Felix, in Acts 24, 14 through 16. And then he spends two years speaking to him and his wife about this one message, and he keeps them imprisoned, and he makes Felix very uncomfortable. But there must be something about this message for him to keep coming back to hear more. And then we have where he stays consistent when he speaks with Herod Agrippa II in Acts 25, 6 and 17 through 23. And again, he is speaking in his defense. How easy would it be to just say, I'll say what they want to hear so I can get out of here and get out of my way but he never strays from his message. And then finally, we have when Paul is in Rome and all that he faced with Nero and the combination of culture, of Gentiles, of Jews coming together and the conflict that he faced there, he remained true to his message for the two years that we see in Acts. So let's talk about what that one message is. And I know we've talked about the threads it's been three years now, I think, that we've been talking about the threads. But I'm going to use the threads here to talk about what that message is. If he's consistent with it, what is that message? How can we be consistent? What are the tools we can use to not only be able to verbalize it ourselves, but to believe it ourselves and to see it in what we're going to continue to read this summer? So just looking at what Paul talked about over the past two weeks, this is where he stays consistent with the threads. The first thing we talk about is the character of God. And what Paul does here is he says, the one God as proclaimed and followed by the Jews. So there's one God. He identifies who he is to all the people. Okay, so Gentiles can recognize him and people know who this God is he's talking about. But he also makes sure to know that let everyone know that this God is for everyone. Okay. This is what, he, again, he focuses on these two weeks. He then talks about the sinfulness of man. The sinfulness of man and the need to repent for salvation. He says over and over. Okay, so we have a God. This is the same God that we have been following. I'm not straying from my Jewish tradition. But let's recognize that we are sinful people. And all the laws and all the rules and all the sacrifices we have made have not been enough. 
okay? So he comes to the sufficiency of Christ. The Messiah found, the Messiah again is who they've been preparing for, hoping for, praying for, sacrificing for. The prophets have been telling us about this Messiah. He is recognizing who he is. The Messiah found in Jesus Christ who defeated death. And again, this is, this is, this is the wording he used these past two weeks. And he talks about the necessity of faith. That would be the fourth thing. The faith to believe in the fulfillment of what Christ did for us. Again, you can connect it all the way with the Jewish history and all that's been prophesied about this Messiah and how Jesus fulfilled that so we can meet the Jews where they're at, but also proclaim it for the Gentiles because it's for the, all the world. Because only Christ could do what he did for us. And then the final part, eternity. The promise of death's defeat and that we will rise again. And again, almost each time he used one of these five threads, he was met with conflict. Someone, a different group, a different culture, a different leader had, had problems with some of these things that he said, but he was consistent with these five threads. And so I think as we continue to read this summer, we'll continue to see these threads and to, to understand the consistency that we see throughout the whole Bible, especially as we are finishing all the way to the end. And that's why I just loved that I saw this this past week. I wanted to share this with you. And then the next. And then I think in God's timing, as he always does, if you guys were at church this past Sunday, or if you listened to it, the question of the week was, um, is Christianity too narrow? So I ask, is this message too narrow? And I think Pastor Bob did a wonderful job talking about all the things that go along the lines of, of why it's not too narrow. But it's something to discuss. But what is this one message that we've just talked about? I'm going to show the video that kind of goes with what Pastor Bob talked about. It's like the part two. And as we're watching it and thinking about the message, what Christianity is, and who Jesus is, we need to remember that in John 14, 6, Jesus does say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Again, one message, and it's very clear. It goes with the threads. It goes with everything Jesus has taught and what Paul has said. So let's keep this in mind as we're watching the video. And then let's also see if we can identify with Paul as our speakers are going to tell us about the cultural conflict they come up against and trying to spread the word, or understanding if Christianity is too narrow. Let's ask the question. I've misspoken or said something. I feel like that I've misspoken or said something in a way oh, that I wanted. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in and out can be served in heaven, bro. <laughs> yeah. Hey. things living in, in a society like ours is is that um, 
there is such diversity and there's there's so many different beliefs and so many different religions around us that it's very difficult for us to imagine that any one of these religions whether it be Christianity or Islam or any, any, any worldview really would claim to have the market on the truth. A couple years ago, I was influenced by uh, an author and, and a man who was a missionary in India and his name was Leslie Newbigin. And he told this parable, there's a story, there's an old story in India about a king and, a, and an elephant. And a king had an elephant and he wanted to do an experiment and so he brought in six blind men and he asked them to tell him what the elephant was. And so the blind man, of course, began to feel around and the first one felt the elephant and the side of the elephant and said, oh, it's a wall. And another man felt, felt the trunk and said, it's, it's a snake. And the other man felt the, the, the foot and said, it's a tree. And you get the point, he felt the ear, it was a fan. And so, and so of course, the point of the story is, and people often tell this um, in India, and, and it's become a popular story in, in our society as well, that the blind men are like the religion, are like the various religions of the world. None of them see the elephant in whole, but they're all basically describing the same thing uh, with different angles, but not one of them could ever say that they have the full knowledge of the elephant. Here's the problem with that. And this is, I was really helped by this, uh, because what this, what this man, Leslie Newbigin, said is, the only way that anyone can ever come to that conclusion is if you are in the position of a king. The only way that you can ever say that each of the individual blind men um, only have part of the truth is if you are the king and you are looking down and seeing the whole picture, seeing the whole elephant, and are able to judge each of the blind men accordingly. And so... The application to, to our time is this, is that I think when people say all religions are basically the same, that sounds really tolerant and it sounds really humble. But in reality, it's, it's kind of an arrogant claim. It's, it's sort of like saying you're in the position of the king, that you can see the whole picture and that each of the religions can only see a part of it. When it comes down to it, I think what I've realized is that we're all exclusivists. All of us are making exclusive claims, whether you say that God is a trinity, like we say in Christianity, or whether you say God is one, the way they do in Islam or Judaism, or the way, or if you say God is many, the way they do in Hinduism, or if you say there is no God, as you do in secular humanism, or you say that all gods are basically the same, which is basically progressive, uh, uh, sort of progressive self-made American religion. In every single case, you are making an exclusive truth claim that has the potential to exclude. You're making a statement about ultimate reality. So I think, I think one of the best ways to do it is just to admit the ways that you're exclusive, to admit that yes, the Christian religion does say that Jesus Christ is the only Savior and Lord. And let's just take all of our exclusive views and put them out on the table and have an honest honest debate about them. I think that's a lot more honest than saying that all religions are the same. We think that narrow means intolerant, right? And intolerant somehow is the, is the cardinal sin of our world, right? If you're playing a guitar, I mean, how many G's are there? How many notes? How many ways can you play a G? That's, is one way to play a G. You're either on key or off key. 
Is that intolerant? Is that narrow? Is that unfair? No, it's beautiful. There's, there's a way to play this note. It's beautiful. The step back is like, well, what, what, what's wrong with that, right? And narrow in what way, right? Narrow in the way of being clear and being concise and being decisive and being attainable, right? Right? Yeah, in, in that sense, absolutely. But that isn't that a good narrow? Like, isn't that, aren't these good things that like, it's not like I'm just, I'm shooting up, I'm, you know, I'm throwing spaghetti at the wall and hoping that one of them sticks. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's broad, right? But that's, I mean, come on now. Like, who's trying to live like that? That you just toss up stuff and hope that something stays on there. Like, nah, man, like, tell me the bullseye, you know? Tell me the target. How do I fix this? How was man made right with God? I'm gonna be like, well, you know, I ain't figured it out. Oh, no, no, I won't. Who has? Nobody's figured it out, right? No, I need you to tell me. What's, what's, how do we get this? So in my mind, I'm like, and why is narrow bad? Narrow's in a lot of contexts good, right? Doesn't mean it lacks grace, doesn't mean it lacks love. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. I like the phrase that truth is narrow. Um, it narrows your options, but grace is this wide. So you've got to hold to the narrowness of truth and the width of grace, and it's a tension you play between the two. That's how kind of Jesus looked, he was full of grace and truth, and he holds that paradox in himself. He says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by means of me. Well, that's pretty narrow of you, Jesus. You're not being very bracing of other people's opinions. Well, so well. He's also extremely gracious, and he's provided for us. In a, in, in a profound way. I mean, he saves us through his own life and death and resurrection and his return. We are caught up into his life. I mean, I, I'm held by that. He was very irreligious and I kind of like him for that because I don't like religion very much and I don't think he did. Religion seeks to kind of control. Uh, often it happens as a dilemma you see, because uh, initially the revelation of God is given to the human being or to a nation in the case of Israel. And then what they have to do to kind of hand it on to the next generation is to create some codes and rituals and ideas and um, things to try and pass that experience on meaningfully to the next generation. It's a dilemma. The very act of actually encoding the religion is the thing that kills it in the long run and actually makes people kind of nasty because people get overattached to the religion itself and lose what the religion is meant to point towards. And so religions, including Christianity, have always got to renew, go back to the originating encounter with God. So all renewal movements are returning to God, rediscovering what was given there, rediscovering God, and then going out again. And we, that's why we, you know, we maintain uh, a rich relationship with God, because without that, we become religious people, nasty, dangerous, don't understand grace, don't understand the grace that they themselves have received, and don't offer it to other people. Uh, which really is not, yeah, not exactly what we're meant to be living like. I think a lot of people struggle to believe because some Christians make it incredible. Um, take away the possibility of making the faith beautiful and winsome incredible because of, because of the way that we live and the things that we do. Now, <laughs> 
there is something funny, uh, funny about that and a little ironic. So Christians are hypocrites. Okay. Yes. I am a hypocrite. Can I just say that? I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I, um, many of the things that I say that I espouse to believe, um, I don't live. And I am, and I know actually lots of, of people who aren't Christians who are, who are, who live better lives than I do. Uh, one of my closest friends is a Sikh and he is a much more disciplined, uh, much, uh, more self-controlled person than I am. But see, the funny thing about Christianity is that hypocrisy actually does not undermine the credibility of the Christian faith because in some ways hypocrisy is necessary. Uh, because what it what is required to be a Christian is not that you're good and moral and squeaky clean and have nothing wrong with you. The first thing that is actually required to become a Christian is that you admit that you're jacked up and need help. That's like the only thing that's required is that you know that you are so messed up that you need grace. So in some sort of weird kind of ironic way, it requires people who are messed up. It requires people who know that their lives are not put together. So this is why when you go into a church, you find a bunch of people who are hypocrites because we are, all of us are. We, we're all broken, we're all messed up. And now that doesn't excuse Christians doing and saying stupid things by any means. But what I'm saying is that the stupidity of Christians does not discredit the reality of the Christian faith. If anything, it points to how important and necessary Jesus is. Uh, because Jesus is there not to make squeaky clean moral people. Jesus is there to save broken, messed up people, of which the church is full of them. Yeah, that's what I'd say to that. chew on it and hopefully talk about it at our tables. Um, but all of it was about the threat and what that means on all these different levels. So if we go to the next slide, I'm going to give some of the quotes from the speakers and ask the question that I hope that we'll continue at the tables. So the first person that we heard from was Corey Whitmer. He was a pa he's a pastor. And he talked about the elephant and, and people, you know, touching the 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 stomach and it being a wall, and that all the religions can kind of come to this one elephant, this one God, and it's all connected. So he says, saying that all religions are the same sounds tolerant and humble, but in reality, it is kind of an arrogant claim. It's sort of like saying you are in the position of the king, the king who can see the whole elephant, okay, almost like God, right? That you can see the whole picture and all religions when others can only see part of it, can sound kind of arrogant, right? And so he asks and talks about exclu being exclusive, exclusivist, in that, in a sense, all religions and all ideas and all statements can be exclusive. What does that mean? I think that's important to talk about what that means in a narrow concept and in a wide concept and what that means for the message. Because um, we'll come back down to the philosopher and he talks about the narrow truth and the wide grace. Right? Uh, so we go to the next speaker, Propaganda. He's a hip-hop artist. And I love that he used the letter, or the, the note G. 
I thought that was so huge, right? You can't get around the letter G and be like, that's kind of a G, that's close. And there's only one letter G when it comes to making music. Okay, letter G. Anyway, <laughs> notes, thank you all. <laughs> um, he talks about narrow being a good thing. I love how he takes the question, is Christianity too narrow? And flips it on its head. Okay, and he talks about what narrow means. Is narrow being clear? concise, decisive, and attainable? And then he asks the question, how is, does it answer the question, how is man made right with God? If we don't know, how can we possibly attain it? If we don't know, how can we clearly understand it? How can we have a concise understanding of what that means if it isn't narrow enough, right? And so he says this, but he also says that doesn't mean it lacks love or grace. So it's followed up by the philosopher Alan Hirsch who says, truth is narrow, but grace is wide. And who encompasses that? Jesus. Okay? Jesus was full of truth and grace. And he was able to do both the narrowness of truth and the width of grace. And then he talked a little bit about how does religion get in the way of what we've talked about here of Jesus' message about the one message of Paul about the threads we're talking about, how can religion get in the way? That could be something you talk about at the tables, about whether you agree or disagree with his examples. What do we come against in our culture or in, our, or in religion sometimes that gets in the way of this beautiful, narrow truth and wide grace? And then we finished in the video with uh, Corey Whitmer again. And I love that you talked about hypocrites. I think they might have asked him that and he kind of was like, oh, hypocrites, that's a good question. Let's talk about it. Let's go there. Um, and he asked about, and was the first one to admit that he's a hypocrite as a Christian. So my question is, how are Christians hypocrites? And how does this proclaim the message instead of discredit it? And I thought he did a really great job explaining that. But again, something you guys can continue to talk about at the tables. So is Christianity too narrow? Is the message too narrow? All right? Or can we turn that upside down? So the, the takeaway as you guys are going back to your tables and again continuing to read this summer, I leave these takeaways with you from this, this week's reading. So individually and as a group, can we consistently verbalize the gospel and fully believe in its power? What does it mean for us individually? What does it mean for us as a church? What does it mean for us as a group? Where are we with that? What can we learn from Paul's example? All right? He also faced a lot of consequences and a lot of backlash from culture and society and different religions. All right? And we've heard from these speakers kind of come to that same conclusion. So how, what can we learn from Paul? What can we learn and take away from that? And then the last question, can the narrowness of Christianity bring more light than darkness? To the questions and concerns of our culture. How can we take this and walk with it? Where can we find light in this instead of darkness? And what does it mean as we walk daily, hourly, yearly, as we continue to walk in our faith? And then we started off this morning with some songs, and I don't know if you guys caught this theme. It was love. And I think Again, just another takeaway as we're going through, and we've talked about what the gospel is and what this message is, we could almost simplify it one step further. And it's important because we'll be talking about this next year and focusing on it. 
but the fundamental message of love and how love is in every part of those five themes we've talked about and in every part of the reading that we've done for three years and then what we're going to focus on next year with the Bible study. So just wanted to leave you with the great commandment, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. When Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, he says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I just think that's important to end on because we're talking about truth and holding fast to what the message is, but always remembering it's in love. It's from the love of God that we've received and the love that we have for others that we can remain true to that one message. So a lot of it is about how we relate to God and others based on that love of God, that love matters, um, that we can be consistent with the one message, what Paul teaches, what Jesus has taught us, what we'll continue to read in the Bible is also consistent with love. So I leave you with a quote, and I liked this. I, we, this was in the phases this past Wednesday or two weeks ago, talking about parenting and love and God, and I just really loved this, this way of looking at it. Trusting Jesus in a way that transforms how you love God and others. So I wanted to leave you with that note of love, with the message, and the consistent theme that we've seen throughout these the five threads in the one message of Paul and Jesus. So that's it. And I hopefully we've left lots of time to go down to your groups and speak and enjoy each other in this time together with our small groups.